Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's a Monday morning and... Uh... My very good friend, Sammy Finkel, Shmuel Finkel from uh, Israel, sent me a, a week ago, two weeks ago, um, really asking me to do a talk on uh, something I didn't really want to do, but since it's Sam, since we we're old friends, I'm not going to turn him down, um, about Zarek Warhaftig and uh, Holocaust rescue stuff, which uh, I think a lot of people are familiar with to some degree or another from a particular angle. Usually people, nowadays it's very popular to talk about the quote-unquote the rescue to Mary Yeshiva to Shanghai and all the rest of it, which is of course an interesting story. Um, and if I know Sam, so, you know, he's interested in Holocaust matters and in Mizrahi matters and Things like this. So anyway, I'm going to do... And he sent me a movie. Somebody just made a, a YouTube video about this. So um don't really want to talk about somebody that I don't know a whole lot about. Um, but I will. Um, I will. So here we go. This is being a sponsor in honor of... Uh, he, uh, Sam's doing this in honor of Rabbi Mrs. Rottenberg, who needs her for Shlema. Um, okay, so we're dealing with somebody's name was Zerach Farhaftig. Uh, Farhaftig is simply German for truthful. So if they lived in Israel today, although he became a big leader in the Israeli gov government in the Mizrahi, it's one of the signers of the Declaration of Ind Independence, but he wasn't there on May 14th, 48. He was somewhere else in Jerusalem. Um, so Farhaftig means truthful. So was it, if they really were Israelis, they called themselves Amiti, <laughs> you know, from Emes. That's uh, an interesting name. Now, um, we're dealing with somebody who's a, living in the 20th century, an important figure in religious Zionism, uh, and comes from a very unusual yeshivish background, uh, who's the son of an interesting character of his own, Yerucham Varhaftig, who is really not well known today at all, I think mainly because he was in, first he was a little bit zany, as far as I can tell, and second of all, because he was uh, a religious Zionist. And uh, that didn't go over in the yeshiva world of Lithuania because uh, the yeshiva world itself was almost all agoda, um, with, a, with a few exceptions. Uh, but Hanahola was all agoda. So we're dealing, so... The father, his name is Rochem Varhaftig, has a very interesting biography of his own. I just don't want to go into a great length. Uh, he's sort of like a Forrest Gump of the Yeshiva world because uh, he was by everybody. This is a family from uh, Belarus, you know. So uh, what, what the borders change, of course, but Litvish in that sense. And uh, Vilkovitz, someplace like that over there in the in Western 
in Belarus, and he was by everybody. This is a guy who learned by, I'm serious about this, by Chaim Brisker, Belazer Gordon, Dalton Navardic, uh, you name it, Shimon uh, Shkop, I kid you not. Um, uh, the Archashochan, I'm serious. You know, you see what I'm saying? It was like, it was like everywhere. Uh, but in a funny pattern, and he became very big lombed. And obviously, listen, you didn't get into the coal of Chaim Brisker. Not a Brisker coal, <laughs> not a Brisker coal. The Kolel by Chaim Salvation in Brisk, <laughs> right? Uh, so that was for the elites. Um, and he, but he didn't want to be a rabbi. I, he, so he didn't have a career in the rabbinate. Um, and just like a private scholar. And he published Lumdish's Svarim. Went into business and that sort of thing. So that itself is a little bit unusual. Um, there's a long history of people lying and saying, I didn't go to the rabbinate because I didn't want to. I wanted to be, you know, really means they wanted to go in the rabbinate, but politics intervenes. As I understand it, in his case, you know, if you want to be a Rav, in, he was born in 1875 and died in 1965, so he'd be early 20th century, um, you know, so if you want to be a Rav somewhere in Lithuania, if you, if, if you didn't have the right situation, let me put it this way, towns were divided into Mizrahi towns and Agoda towns. And places he tried at were more like a good type towns. And uh, when I say Mizrahi, good, every town had both. But the question is, what's the preponderant majority? So who wants to be a rabbi in a shul where from day one, you know, a third of the place or a quarter of the place is trying to knock you out? And that's unfortunately how the bitter politics was. This is the Lushan Hara in um, the Litvisha world in the early 20th century, down to the Holocaust, really. Um, so it's not simply a question of how well do you know how to learn, but uh, also, you know, what are your political standings? And uh, the successful Rabbanim were those who knew how to how to dance on eggshells. Um, it comes to mind the Dvar of Rome, people like that. Uh, because you had to know, you know, not to push it too far this way, push it too far that way. And uh, that's going to be part of our story. So the father was this big Lamdan, now, he published a lot of form uh, called Yerucham. I mean, it's Imre Yerucham, Shalmi Yerucham, you know, all, they always have Yerucham in it. So if you're interested, you look it up, you'll see. As far as I'm aware, they're not well known today, even though they're super lumpish form of yesteryear, and they're very yeshivish. And uh, I remember Rab Zevin has a book review of one of his stuff. And uh, he's, you know, in his book review book, and uh, they're very, you, you'd think they'd be very similar because they're both, you know, sort of litvish at times, even though Zem was a chassid, but uh, they were Mizrahi, they were religious Zionists. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and very big in learning. And uh, he had, so I remember he said that this guy has a funny career. First he went to Tells, then he went to Brisk, and then he went to Volosian, where really it should have been the other way around, Right. In other words, first you go to Volozhin to, to, to learn Shas, because that's Volozhin, Shas with all the Rishonim, and then you go to Brisk to refine that, and then you go to Tells for the for the Pilpul, you know, and he went the other way around. And uh, he, he and he, uh, as I recall it, he had something of a critical, I mean, in the Rab Zevin way, I mean this in the highest sense, you know, um, a critical uh, book review, um that he would reserve for a great Talmud Chachamim. You know, as you said, this far, but really, if you look here, it says that way. But uh, we're talking about somebody who was a player in the world of uh, high Torah scholarship. 
And he himself said in the beginning of one of his books, he said, I got letters of thank you from a Baruch Bear and other people like that. So the father was a big lamdan, uh, was a businessman, and his son, our hero, was born in 1906, when the father's around 30, 31. And different, you know, dates matter. So we're dealing with somebody who lives through the 20th century. And he died when he was close to 100, I think, 95, 100. So he went from 1906 to around the end, or something like the year 2000, or something like that. All through the 20th century. Uh, and he's living in Poland, actually in Warsaw. That's where they ended up moving. Uh, and like I say, the father was, you know, I would say a moderately successful, as I understand it, the business person. But, you know, he sat and learned a Welt, and he published a Welt of Chadushim in these different Sfarim of Yeruchim. Like I say, the Shalmi Yeruchim, Imi Yeruchim, this Yeruchim, that Yeruchim. And I don't mean the funny way, I just don't remember all the names. Now, um, and I've never really gone into them much. I remember the Zevin book review. Uh, and right now I'm pulling up one, Shalmi Yeruchim, uh, which is on uh, from the father which is on uh, the Rambam in Kutchim. It gives you an idea of what we're talking about. Uh, you know, it's it's, 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 it's lumdus. Not Pilbul, it's, it's Yeshiva Shalomdus. Okay. Now, our uh, heroes, they say, if he's born in 1906, and figure this out. So he's eight years old when the First World War breaks out. He's in Belarus, or what we would call Lita, the greater Lithuania. Um... Actually, the town he was in, Vilkovitz, don't ask me how I noticed, that was the headquarters of the German High Command in the Eastern Front in that part of the war. So uh, I guess they made it through World War I okay. And after the war, they ended up in Warsaw. So this is somebody who's growing up, let's see, 1918, so he'd be 12, 13, 14 years old when Poland becomes a state. Now, unfortunately, geography becomes very important. And I know people listening to this podcast, unless you're a mere yeshiva rescue freak, uh, you're not going to know the borders. So if you want to understand what I'm talking about, just Google a map of Europe in 1920, and then late, or 1930 even, and the map of Eastern Europe was redrawn after the First World War, and a bunch of wars, especially by 1922-23, and there emerged the Republic of Poland, because Poland had ceased to exist back in the late 1700s. It was eaten up by the three neighboring countries. But now after the First World War, Poland got its Kiyos Mesem. Uh, and Poland had a lot of wars with the countries around it. And Poland had uh, three and a quarter million Jews, the, you know, the, the largest Jewish population. That's a gigantic uh, Jewish population by European standards. Now all this matters in the story because um, you had a ton of Jews uh, next to next door was the three small countries of Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. So, suffice it to say that in the 1920s and 30s, a chalik of what you and I would call Lithuania, Litvish, was conquered and was added to the Republic of Poland. So our hero, if he's born in Western uh, Belarus, uh Let's call it, it's, it belongs to Poland in the 1920s and 30s. That's a, there had been a war the Soviet Union had conquered areas, the Poland had conquered areas. By the time it's over, it's part of Poland, which really means that he's very close to the Soviet border, but he's in Poland. 
that made a giant difference, um, obviously, in your life in the 1920s and 30s, if you're a few miles this side, a few miles that side of the border. Take, for example, Branovich and places like that. I think even Kletsk. They're very close to the Russian border, but since they're on the Polish side, you could be from Jew. You get it? You could have a yeshiva. Even though Poland was anti-Semitic, but Orthodox Jewish life you could pursue. And if you're a few miles on the other side of the border, on the Soviet side of the border, you can't. You know, the communists shut everything down. So, and it also means that these Litvisha Jews in places like Vilna and those other areas near there, even though they're quote-unquote Litvish, Lithuanian by background, but since in the 1920s and 30s, they're part of the Republic of Poland, the language you're going to learn, if you're going to learn any language, is going to be Polish language, not Lithuanian or anything like that. And if you want to succeed in that environment, you better get yourself a good Polish secular education. Okay, so our hero, if he's born in 1906, so it means he's become a teenager and growing up in the 1920s and 30s. This is the uh, formative years. And those are the years that are characterized in Poland among Polish Jewry, three and a, three and a quarter million, uh, by several features. Uh, what's Nogaya to us is, first of all, as I say, the language, everything is Polish. Second of all, the Frumer or had bitter fights between the Agud and the Mizrahi. Um, in the Republic of Lithuania, which was the smaller country next to Poland, the Agud and Mizrahi didn't like each other, but they had to get along because they had to combine in the Yavna school network against the non-Frum. But in Poland, the Aguda had a, a, its own uh, a school system and network, and the, and the Mizrahi had their own. The Yavne in, in, in Poland was a Mizrahi operation, a religious Zionist. Now, there are too many Jews in Poland, three and a quarter million, for a country with 30 million. And the Poles made that clear from day one. And consequently, if you ask yourself the question, living in Poland, 1920s and 1930s, you know, what's the future? What's going to happen to me when I'm 10, 20 years old from now, older than now, or my children after me? So there wasn't, a, it was a bleak future because, uh, you know, Poland obviously didn't want you, they wanted you to get the hell out of there. That's what they said. Uh, they said it. So, uh, so what do you do? Now, I think many of you are familiar with the fact that after 1924, you couldn't go to America anymore. Until 1924, people left Poland and went to America, but you can't do it after 1924 with the quotas. So, what do you do? Um, so, you have a, a bad situation of a, of a strong anti-Semitism in Poland and an understandable anti-Semitism in Poland because, as Jabotinsky wrote, what are the Poles supposed to do? Open up all the jobs to meritocracy? The Jews will ace all the civil service tests and get all the jobs. And it's not their country. It's Poland. It belongs to Poland. So the Poles won it, you know. So it wasn't a great future. Um, and the other countries around the world imitated the United States and, and closed down the borders in the 1920s. Uh, like South Africa, for example, things like that. And so what do you do? So one, the reason I'm mentioning all this is this was the big attraction of Zionism in the 1920s and 30s, especially if you're not doing great in Poland. Um, and it was the big attraction of religious Zionism as well as secular. Okay? So the Zionists in Poland were three main groups. Your uh, left-wing socialist types, your right-wing religious types, 
and your you know uh, middle class uh, Jabotinsky and uh, types and, and and bourgeois types, but they all had the idea that listen, my future is not in Poland, and I don't expect to be buried here. You know, I expect sooner or later we'll get a Jewish state, and then we'll move there, uh, in one fashion or another. But just like in America, people say like this: <coughs> I'll move there when the coast is clear. You understand? <coughs> Once there's a state of Israel and they solve the Arab-Israeli problem and they have a prosperous economy and all the rest of it, when things are okay, then I'll move there. Uh, the reason I mention this is there was not a big Aliyah movement from the three and a quarter million Jews in Poland in the 1920s and 30s. And that's a big part of our story. Uh, nobody foresaw, or very few people foresaw what you and I know today, which is, as Jabotinsky said, the ground is burning before you. And if you don't get the heck out of your neck, you're going to get killed. Um, some people said that, but people didn't listen to him. Any more than, uh, frankly, if you say today, why don't you leave the United States? And Americans say, well, it's not so bad, you know. And somebody else says, what do you mean? You have increased anti-Semitism. And, you know, look at the violence that's happening all the time, even in Brooklyn and blah, blah, blah. And the Americans say, well, not, not yet, not yet, you know. So that exact attitude was going on in Poland. Uh, and Eastern Europe in general in 1920. So there wasn't like a huge movement among the youth. Let's storm the gates and bust into Palestine. Uh, now that's true. And then, the, so our hero is growing up um, in this environment. And uh, his father, as they say, was a businessman. I don't know the story, but obviously he knew how to learn. So that means he either learned with the father or learned in some kind of yeshiva type environment. If you ask me, I get the impression that since his father, this is my impression, since his father was uh, frustrated or messed over in, in, in attempts to get a Stella because he to be a, a Ravi was certainly capable, um, because he was a Mizrahi, so the son like doubled down on that. Now maybe I'm wrong, but you know, that's, that, that's what it seems to me. So he became very involved in the Mizrahi movement in Poland. Uh, which, just like the Aguda set up its own subculture, the Mizrahi set up its own subculture with their own schools and a couple of yeshivas and, you know, uh, girls' schools and hachshara's uh, uh, and, you know, prepare for kibbutzim and all that sort of thing. And Poland was fine with that. They said, you know, get all the Zionism you can because get the heck out of here. Move to Palestine, please. You know, so it was all legal. And uh, he realized, as did... A certain element out there um, in Poland in the 20s and 30s, which is, I want to get a secular education too. Uh, not at the expense of the from education, but secular education too. Now, you know, this was always, always was and always is controversial. To use American language, how much college? Um, and the yeshiva world and all that says you have no college. Uh, but the Mizrahi world particularly... And not only them said, you know, if you want to get a future here in Poland, even to be successful advocating for Jewish causes, it'll be much better if you have a Polish education, you can speak Polish, you have a degree that they'll respect and things like that. And so he went to university. So here we have a Jewish kid in the 20s and 30s, born in 1906. So that means he's 20 years old in 1926. And... Um, so maybe learn with the father, maybe learned in one of these, uh, there, there were a fair number of frameworks over there. There was the Masif, the Tachamoni, I don't know, all these other, there was places to learn if you wanted to learn how to learn Gemara. 
Uh, and so he had the closest thing, what we would call today, to a uh, to a, 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 a Torah education and a secular education, and eventually got a, a, a law degree in the University of Warsaw, which is exactly what Menachem Begin did, and Dr. Seidman and others, because um, then you get your creds. The University of Warsaw uh, was like the, the Harvard of Poland, and, uh, you know, that gives you instant credibility. And at the same time, he was uh, very active in the Mizrahi movement in Poland, uh, and as a matter of fact, having a, a, a law degree, or or today you'd say a PhD, something like, makes you more chashev. And he obviously, therefore, must have been part of the uh, inter intra-Orthodox politics that was going on in Poland in the 1920s and 30s, because especially in the 30s, situation steadily de- deteriorated. But just like the frog in the hot water, you know, they didn't, you know, perceive it exactly the way we know today. Certainly nobody foresaw the Holocaust. Or let's put it this way, very few. Very, very few. And that's what makes anyone who studies the history of Eastern European Jewry, especially in the Republic of Poland, which had so many Jews, and spend so much time fighting each other, you know, the Hasidim were all in... Well, it depends. Each Hasidic group was different. Ger had people both in the Mizrahi and the Agoda. Um, you know, Bell's not, and, uh, you know... It, 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 it was a lot of dirty politics and going on, but at the same time, it's very vigorous Jewish life. So the Beis Yakimah was starting over there, and the Avna for the Mizrahi, and this one, and you know, and, and like a young people's groups. But as the situation deteriorated increasingly, so um, you'd think that there would be a mass push to move to Palestine, which the British would not let in so many. But it's very complicated because if you had money, <coughs> you could make Aliyah. Okay, the quotas didn't apply to people who had money. So, for example, our hero's father, the old man, uh, Yeruchim Varhaftig, when he was 60 years old, he made Aliyah in 1935. He had money, and uh, what do you call it? You could get in like that. And he spent the next 30 years of his life in Israel, you know, learning up a storm and publishing farm and things like that, having a ball. Uh, I think he lived in the Bnei Brak and Yerushalayim, whatever, you know, like that. And then he hung around with the I'm serious. Hung around with the Chazanish, he hung around with Zalma Meltzer, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, but the son stayed behind in Poland and, uh, you know, became member fully of the full Zionist movement, well, to Zionist Congresses. And, you know, and by 1936, he's 30 years old, obviously, and uh, he's living that life of what we call the partisan person. In those days, you uh, Zionism, which was on the way to making the state of Israel, as you know, could be almost a full-time occupation if you would allow it. In other words, you go to all the meetings, you go to all the congresses, you go around giving speeches, you get involved in the official uh, organization, you're the chairman of this committee, you're involved in that thing, and that's the kind of life he lived. Once Israel became a state, it, it wasn't that way. Then you have regular government. Until then, you had professional Zionists that they spend all their time on the road going around and uh, talking up and organizing and recruiting and things like that, uh, responding to attacks. So this is the life he lived. Now um, come, now we're talking about the 1930s, and especially the, the middle and late 30s. By then, Hitler was already there, and it, you know things got continually worse, even though Poland is a country next door. 
the anti-Semitism of the Polish government increased under the Polish society. But like the frog in the hot water, you know, people didn't perceive it. And there wasn't a rush to go to Palestine. If you weren't rich, they have what they call a, a quota, certificates for a quota. The Zionist organization was given by the British every year after negotiations X number of certificates. And if you got a certificate, you and your family could move to Teretz Yisrael. But on the other hand, um, most Polish Jews, most Lithuanian Eastern European Jews didn't do that. You know, they, many, many more could have taken advantage of the opportunities than did. But like I say, you can't complain now because in America we're pretty much the same. Uh, except that, you know, there was a much more blatant rise of anti-Semitism in a violent way. And um, the result is that most Polish Jews, uh, you know, didn't push to move now to Israel. They figured the day after tomorrow, you know, when, when things are better. May I also say that um, the economy in Israel was far from perfect. And there was a big intifada, a big Arab uprising. Now, Luzeric Israel was a very violent place in many places. I mean, really violent from the Arabs in the late 30s, from 36 to 39, was the big Arab uprising. So, you know, people got shot in the streets. Uh, you know, uh, worse than now. And therefore, people say, I guess, oh, I'm staying in safe Poland. I'm not moving to dangerous Israel. Isn't that funny? Because you and I know a few years later, come the Holocaust is the other way around. But I'm talking about the way people perceived it at that time. And so even as late as 1937, 38, 39, you'd think, like, get the heck out of here. Uh, no. Um, you know, there were those who wanted to leave, and some even tried to go illegally. But most didn't do that. And our hero, by that time, see, in his early 30s, was like a big macher in the Zionist movement, Bichlal. In other words, he's a member of the Mizrahi, but... Uh, Mizrahi is part of the Greater Zionist Movement, and he was in charge, I think, of the Aliyah office. I saw in this movie that Sammy sent me that when the when the war broke out, in other words, he didn't leave either. When the war broke out in September of thirty nine, which was unexpected. Now today you look at it with hindsight, you say, "How could you be unexpected?" But I'm trying to tell you, if you want to understand what's going on at that time, the great majority of the Eastern European Jews, including the big Rabbanim and Gedolim. Didn't see it coming. And we're, we're surprised and shocked. We're taken by surprise like a deer in the headlight. And even afterwards, as we shall see, they didn't grasp correctly the situation. And um, and therefore they paid the price. Uh, now our hero now enters the most important part of his life as far as our story is concerned. Um, for the purpose of this podcast. And for purposes of Sam Finkel. And that is that when the war broke out, so uh, let's put it this way, he finally understood. Now, to, 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 total, to understand the reality that you and I today know by hindsight, it hit different people at different times. And very often too late. As we shall see, some of the famous Rosh Hashivas, Rabbanim, they didn't get it until it was too late. Like Rabbi Hanum Wasserman. Uh, he had opportunities to go to Israel and things like this. No, no, no. By the time he realized it, the situation was too late. Taka was too late in 41. And he got killed. So, if Zerich Varhaftig has any claim to fame, he didn't see it coming as far as I can tell. 
prior to the outbreak of World War II, which was in the beginning of September of 39. But when the war broke out, he hopped, which means he hopped a little bit earlier than the others. And Poland, what happened was, Poland was attacked by Nazi Germany. Um, England and France declared war on, on Germany, but they didn't do a thing to help Poland. Germany and Russia cut a deal before the invasion to split the country between them. So Germany will take half of Poland and Russia will take the other half. And that's what happened. It's called the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. And the Germans overran their part of their Chalik of Poland. And then the Russians took over their Chalik of Poland. And the Jews, the millions of Jews, the three and a quarter million Jews, is the luck of the dice. Who do you end up under? Did you end up under Hitler or did you end up under Stalin? Okay. Now, either one's bad. But again, looking in hindsight, it's better under Stalin. Now, you see, it's funny because, um, how should I put it? <coughs> Perspectives are weird. Um, the Frum world, especially the Haredi world, the Yeshiva world, many of them thought at that time, in 1939, that Stalin is worse than Hitler. Which is crazy today, but it's from the point of view... And we're dealing with mentalities, and mentalities, as the French call it, uh, which is Stalin is going after your neshama, Hitler's only going after your goof. I mean, I get that part, you know? It sounds good in the speech, but it's crazy. Because Stalin, at least you'll survive. And you and I know, whatever happens, as long as you're alive, you can always come back. If Hitler, if, if you're dead, you ain't coming back. Many Jews ended up under Stalin and maybe became not from for a while, this, that, and the other. I mean, but they're still Jewish, they're still alive. And many came back in one fashion or another. And that's happening even down to the, down till today. Um, I know Soviet Jewry ain't the greatest shape uh, spiritually, but, you know, there's a potential they're going to come back. The ones killed by Hitler, no potential anybody's going anywhere. So when the country was split into two, this is September, October of 39. So our hero, who was in Warsaw, ran away to the east. But you'll tell me like this. You want to go to um, the part of Poland controlled by Stalin? Uh, that's not going to be good because Stalin is against Zionism uh, and against religious Jews in general, although, as we'll see in a second, he didn't have it out particularly for the religious Jews. No, it was just in general. But the Zionism, he had more out. Uh, and so if you run away to the eastern part of Poland, that's bad too, although it's nowhere near as bad as being under Hitler. Uh, however, what our hero did and what as many of the yeshivas and those types did, if possible, was to try to get out of Poland altogether. Certainly not to stay in western Poland when you're under the Nazis and also not to be under the communist part, the Stalin part. Uh, and so they ran to the next country, the to the country next door, which was Lithuania. So until, so all through the 1920s and 30s, Poland, when it was still there, now you're not going to know what I'm talking about unless you Google a map of Europe in the 1920s and 30s. And if you want to be really technical, then you have to start looking for maps of Poland, and Lithu <coughs> of Lithuania, 1939, 1940, and 41. Um, but it mattered a lot to the Jews that are living then. And Lithuania, 
Latvia and Estonia, the three countries next to Poland, the Baltic Sea, um, they were neutral. And see, Poland is in the middle of Germany and Russia. So Poland's always going to be screwed geographically, and they know it. They said they're cursed by geography because they have the wolf on the one side and the lion on the other. You know, between the two, they're going to be, it's going to be destroyed. And that's what happened in 1939. Um, I'm sure I must have told you this. Poland is a famous story that you've always heard many variations of. A Polish joke, which is three people are sitting on a park bench. It's Pol- a Polish guy, a Russian, and a German. And an angel appears, a genie, and says, everybody gets one wish. But whatever the wish is, will be fulfilled. So the German says, my wish is to wipe out Russia. And the Russian said, my wish is to wipe out Germany. And the angel said, well, it will be fulfilled. It'll be Mikoyum. And then he says to the Polish, the Polak, he said, what do you want? He says, I'll take a cup of coffee. <laughs> you know? Yes, you know? Because in other words, their, their nightmare is Germany and Russia. Uh, that's true then, it's true today. So... They're the ones really getting it in the chin. But Lithuania is like a little packed over a, a little on the side. They're out of the way. So theoretically, they don't have to be part of what I just said. They could be neutral. And they imagined and dreamed that they would be successful in their neutrality, as many countries in Europe imagined during the Second World War. Now, one or two or three got lucky and they were taka neutral. Switzerland, Lemais at the end, never was able to be neutral throughout the war. They, they pulled it off. Sweden also. But most of the other countries that planned to be neutral in World War II weren't. They were taken over by the Germans or by the Allies. I mean, that, that that's how it went. Okay? So, uh, but that's hindsight I'm talking about. So, to make a long story short, all the from Jews who could, and I'm emphasizing the from, not only the from, but our story has to do with the from, uh, ran away to Lithuania, especially because this is complicated because part of Lithuania had been part of Poland, as they said before, like Vilna area. It had been conquered by the Poles from the Lithuanians, which is why Lithuania and Poland had had a permanent war in the 1920s and 30s, which was forcibly settled in 1938. Um, but when the Russians took over half of Poland, so Poland doesn't exist anymore. So Stalin, the head of Russia, playing games, said to Lithuania, you know, I'll give you the part that Poland took back from you, so you can have Vilna, the Vilna area. Uh, so all of a sudden, people like Chaim Meiser and the others, who had been in Vilna and under Poland for 20 years, all of a sudden find themselves in the Republic of Lithuania, which was fantastic, because it means that they're not under Stalin, they're not under Hitler, at least for now. So starting from October, let's say, of 39, until the following May and June, Vilna and the rest of Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia were neutral and were dreaming that they would be able to remain neutral. Because after all, we're so small, they figured, we're not threatening, we're tiny, so we're not threatening Germany and we're not threatening Russia. So maybe they can leave us out of it. Um, So this was like a drug, you understand? They persuaded themselves because to think about the other possibility was too painful. (laughs) Okay? And so the result was that um, Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia enjoyed about six months of unusual neutrality, something like that, seven months, eight months, and uh, the Jews who were able to escape there 
and the Lithuanian Jews of Lithuania itself, including my father, they said, boy, we're really lucky. Uh, Hashem has really uh, spared us. This is so much better than the First World War when Lithuania was in the war zone. This time we're going to avoid being in the war zone and we're going to be like a, a Switzerland. You see? We'll just sit out the war. And uh, like I say before, you can talk yourself into saying, see, Lithuania was the Malcolm Torah. Hashem therefore set aside a special, you know, safe zone like Yavne v'chachameho, and we will sit out the war. Nebuch, the poor Jews in Poland are screwed. But those of us who are lucky to live in Lithuania, and of course we'll help any Jew who can escape here, that's for sure, so we'll be able to make it. Now this was a pipe dream, but that's what they thought. Um, now, our hero escaped there for, from Warsaw to Lithuania. So he ran away you know, through northern Poland into Lithuania, got to Vilna. He had been in charge of the Zionist uh, certificate office. Like I say, he had those precious legal certificates that if you got one, you and your family could move to Eretz And he brought them with him. He had 700, it said in the movie. Uh, so those are 700 life-saving things. If you take them. Now, listen to this. As late as the war was already on, September, October, November, December, January 3940, the Jews now who had escaped and made it to Lithuania, most of them thought, I don't have to move to Israel. It'll be just fine over here. Particularly the yeshivas that had been in Poland that escaped. Now I'm talking about the Litvishi yeshivas, but for the most part, that ran away from Poland to Lithuania. They weren't far away from there anyway. And so you're talking about uh, Ron Cutler with the Kletsk and uh, Kamenets and uh, Mir and uh, Radin, you know, all those places that had been in what I call Polish-Lithuania and now, because of the changing borders, locked out and they found themselves in Lithuania proper. They said, okay, this is great. We'll sit out the war here. And it's familiar territory. And they went to Vilna where Chaim Meiser was in the last year of his life and he saw this like as a supreme moment to save the yeshivas, and he was getting money from America, and from the Vadat Sala, and Agudas Rabbanim, and Blazer Silver, and people like that, and he said like this, listen, we'll get the support from America, and we'll be able to maintain the yeshivas here. And so, the, what they did during these months was, every yeshiva that had been in in, uh, Pol in, in, in Poland, they moved to some town in Lithuania. I discussed this when we did the, the what do you call it, the memoirs of... Uh, from Montreal, what's his name, of Hirschsprung. You know, he writes about this in first person. But all the yeshivas located, you know I mean, Demir yeshiva went to this town in Lithuania, and the place, the Kletsky yeshiva went to that town in Lithuania, and the other one in the third town, and, you know, they're coming home to roost, so to speak. In Lithuania itself, the, the Republic of Lithuania used to have only three yeshivas. It's, it's a, a Slobodka and the Tells and Panovich. But uh, now they're all showing up over there, and they're, like I say, like in a safe zone, they thought. Now, um, our hero comes to, to, to Vilna, and he says like this, you know, maybe I was a dreamer also, but now I've woken up and smelling the coffee. we got to get out of here. Sooner or later, the Germans and the Russians are going to come into here. We're going to get killed. we got to get out of here. Uh, and he had 700 certificates. And so he started giving them out. Now, I'm not 100% clear about this. Start giving him out to, you know, to uh, Zionists, 
want to move to Israel. Um, there's always a bitter fight because the Agudas, I guess, you kept all the certificates in the 20s and 30s just for the Zionists. Well, if they are good at the certificates, they wouldn't share with them either. I mean, you know, that, that that's there's a lot of hypocrisy going on over here. Every group favored its own group, you know. Uh, but, you know, that, that, that's how uh, the partisan life was lived in Eastern Europe in those in those centuries, <laughs> uh, called the 20th century. But be that as it may, uh, I don't think he even used up to 700, I think. Now, how would you move... You see, you've got to Google your maps. It's, I, I don't want to bore you with all the geographical details, but how would you move, even if you got a certificate, from Lithuania to Palestine in late 39 and 40? Well, let's think about this. Was it World War II yet? It was not a world war. Not yet. What do you mean by that? There was three countries fighting each other. There was Germany on the one side and England and France on the other. That's it. The rest of the world was neutral. The United States was neutral. Okay? The other countries in Europe were neutral. People had hoped it would not be a world war that it would confine itself just to England and France versus Germany. It didn't happen that way, but I'm talking about the way people were thinking. So you have to, to the degree possible, put yourself into the mentality of people living at that time. So if I'm in Vilna, if I give somebody a certificate... They could go take a boat to Sweden, which is not far away. And then from Sweden, you could take a ship. Because it's all neutral. You know, uh, to Holland, let's say, for example. And from Holland, you can take a train, you know, down to Marseille. Actually, you could take a train all the way across Europe. And you could get to Israel, you know, through the Orient Express and go through the Middle East. Which is what the Bells Rebbe did in the middle of the war in 1944. So, I mean, see, there were ways of of getting to Eretz Yisrael at that time uh, easier than was true later. Uh, now, situation deteriorating, but Chaim Meiser didn't see it that way. And the other Russian Shiva didn't see it that way. They said, you know, we'll be able to hold out over here. The main job right now is to keep the Yeshivas intact and that the learning should continue. Which of course I understand, but he was saying, no, 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 don't, no, you know, the, forget that, get everybody out of here. That's that, that's more important than anything else. Now he was a pitcher compared to Chaim Weiser, so you know, who, who are people going to listen to? Uh, but it doesn't matter because uh, it wasn't successful. So here you are in late '39 and early '40, and this guy Zarek Bahavtig is going around in Lithuania, in Vilna, and then in Kovna trying to figure out uh, how to get people out. Uh, now, understand this well, especially with the hindsight of today, but even at that time, they could not save European Jewry. We're not talking about a question of saving six million. We're not even talking about a question of saving 100,000. You know, those kind of numbers, even tens of thousands. That was not possible. They were doomed. By that I mean, no country... And the world was going to take in large numbers of Jews in 1940. They didn't want them. Better drop dead. Okay? And so what we call, what you and I call the 6 million, which really is a 5 point some million, uh, they, they were toast by then. It's a, it, it's a shame. Uh, now, if the world would have changed their mind, and if America would say to everyone, even then, 
you couldn't say millions, but you could say more. But you're talking about saving relatively small numbers. But by us, all numbers count. So the tragic story that I'm getting involved in is a story which says they saved 2,000, 3,000 when they could have saved 10,000 or 12,000 or something like that. You know, but I mean, you're not talking about large numbers. Nevertheless, the story is tragic um, because here you are in early 40, 1940, and um, how are you getting out? And the yeshivas aren't really pushing to get out. I think that they had like long-term plans, I forget exactly, to move to America. The good in this country, which was very weak at that time, were trying to come up with some formula, like the Agudas Rabbanim, I kind of remember this, that you know, bring in 2,500 rabbinical students. 2,500 would have covered most of the literature yeshivas, right? You know, Sabat, Gamir, Tells, and all the rest of it. I seem to remember they had some plan like that. But what are they talking about? 1941, 42, 43, you know, like that. Um, they didn't see it's much more urgent than that. And so, like a Cassandra, our heroes running around in Kovno and in in Vilna, places in, in, in neutral Lithuania, trying to talk to each consulate and government, you know, can we, can we send some Jews to you? Uh, now, I just told you before they weren't going to send him. I'm speaking in hindsight. He was saying, you have to give it the old school try. And to be perfectly honest, <clears throat> I remember that uh, from long ago, believe it or not, there were like a thousand or two thousand, something like that, um, slots for South Africa. They had not a large number, but there there was possibilities of South Africa taking a couple thousand. And, you know, you want to get down to real desperate, Portugal could possibly take a couple thousand for their African colonies. And, uh, you know, maybe this country could take a thousand in. You see what I'm saying? That's how, you ha that's how he was thinking. Do what you can and get them out now. Because sooner or later it would be too late. But, you know, nobody listened to him. So it's very frustrating. So he could send out the couple hundred that he had the certificates for, but he's already thinking in much larger terms and not in terms of a good of Mizrahi. He's talking about saving Jews. So this is why this was like his, his finest hour because he's thinking of a Claudius-Roll type approach. Um, and he saw that, you know, the end is not good. I don't know if he envisioned exactly what's going to happen, but he, you know, he kind of did at a time when others did not. And so here are these crucial months of January, February, March, April, May of 1940, when Lithuania is still independent. And so if you're Jewish, life here continues like regular. Um, and the Jews didn't see that, you know, the situation is radically deteriorating. My own father was part of this. You know, he was well-to-do. I'm sure if he would have put the old school try in, since he had money, he could have gotten out there, go to Sweden or someplace like that, you know. But, like, but he didn't, you see. Because in those months, he was still prospering. Um, it's a t it's a terrible, tragic story, uh, and so this is how the situation unfolds in these months in 1940. Uh, and again, Rav you know, the others they didn't, you know, they they simply didn't see it his way. And uh, I'm sure the fact that he was a Mizrahist, you know, damaged his. His, his credibility with them or something like that, 
even though he was an unusual mitzvahist because his father had been like a colleague where Bechayim Meisner and the Kolel where Bechayim Brisker, you know, I mean, in those, it was a big deal. Uh, they, he's not your typical <clears throat> religious Zionist. Came from the yeshiva world, and for all I know, maybe learned yeshiva. I can't tell, but I mean, he was a Talmud Chacham. Uh, he is a Talmud Chacham, by the way. If you look in his father's sefer, which I pulled up online to tell you the truth, uh, for this and the Shalma Yerucham, which was published by the father. Now the father by this time had made Aliyah in 1935, so he was sitting pretty, and he's publishing a sefer Tavshin Aleph. So in other words, in late 1940, early 1941, and he adds at the end of it, Torah Halolo Batar Vira Zerach Nero Yoyer. My son is now one of, is in Europe with the with the Platim, and therefore I'm publishing whatever, you know, Divrei Torah is Lumdus, you know, that that I have in, in, in my possession now, because I don't know where he is. And you know, I see it's like it's on your day, it's on the Kasha the Yeshua's Yankov and a Ramban. You can look at it yourself. Anyway, um, so maybe that, you know, got him like an entree with the big rabbis and Nir and the others, but you know, they didn't really see things his way, and they couldn't get any kind of energetic uh movements to get out of the country and look how to get out of there. Any movements, any energy that the Russia Shivas had was to um, set up or reestablish their yeshiva, new towns in the new Lithuanian reality, and try to get money and, and support the boys that the learning should go on 24-7. Uh, again, I understand that. You know, that's a very Torahic way of looking at things, but uh, they didn't see that uh, right now the most important thing is to get out of there, because otherwise everybody's going to get killed. And of course, in the end, most of them got killed uh, a, year, a year later, right? In the middle of forty-one, now um, there's a tragedy. Now the story is that Hitler, um, between September of thirty-nine and May of nineteen forty, did not really fight on the Western Front. He took over Poland, and then he concentrated his armies to make a surprise attack, a blitzkrieg they call it, in May of forty. And the British and the French very stupidly didn't do anything during that time, and so they made it possible for Hitler to sort of surprise attack them. Uh, so that's why during these months they called the Zitzkrieg, not the Blitzkrieg, that everybody was just sitting around and no real fighting was going on. And that's why you had this illusion in Eastern Europe as well as elsewhere that you know the war is not so real. But in May of forty. Uh, Hitler launched his big attack in the West on France, and they overran the French in a month and conquered France, which shocked everybody because in the First World War, France held out against Germany and beat them in the end. And here they just collapsed with the German Blitzkrieg for, you know, because the Germans had better military and military tactics. And in the process, Hitler also took over Belgium and Holland. He needed Belgium to go around. The, uh, the 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 French fortifications and Holland he didn't need that for that but he did he, he thought the British were going to land in Holland so he took over Holland and all of a sudden the war really heated up now why am I going through this for a number of reasons but one of them is that this unexpected success of Hitler 
freaked out Stalin because, uh, now I have to get a little technical here, why did Stalin cut a deal with Hitler? First of all, they both wanted to screw Poland, that's for sure. But why are you allying yourself with Hitler? Because Stalin thought in very simple terms. Uh, the best plan for us is to get different enemies to fight each other. And when those enemies exhaust each other, then I'll move in and take over the whole thing. So from Russian point of view, Stalin engineered matters in such a way that he thought Hitler played into his hands. The Hainu, that uh, Stalin made a, uh, a deal with Hitler to divide up Poland. Hitler attacked Poland. Listen closely. Hitler attacked Poland in the beginning of September of 39, and that brought the British and the French in to declare war on Hitler um, for, for doing that. So now there's a war on between the England and France on the one side and Germany on the other. Stalin didn't go into Poland until two weeks later. Why? Poland was already falling. And he just moved in and took over that part of Poland. It was very brutal that we took it over. So since he didn't declare war in Poland, and when he went into Poland, he said, I'm only taking the non-Polish parts that are, have Ukrainians and others in it anyway, so it's, I'm just doing this to save them from Hitler. You know, see what a hypocrite he was? And for that reason, Germany and France did not declare war in Stalin. So now he said, great, there's a war on between my two sets of enemies. I don't like England and France. I don't like Germany. Let them wipe each other out. He thought it's going to be a repeat of World War I, in which the two sides would wipe each other out. And then at the right moment, I'll move in and take in the whole thing, take over the whole business. Because he didn't want Hitler to get too powerful. And then to his shock, in, May of, in June of 1940, the Germans just overran France. And it looked like they're going to take over England also. You know, that's when Churchill became the Prime Minister in England and held him back, but nobody knew it. And so he said, Oy vey, Germany's going to get too strong and will attack us. Which actually happened in the end. So therefore, Stalin, when, the, when, when Hitler took over France, Stalin took over Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. Okay, that's how it worked. They came and took it over. And, you know, annexed it to Russia through various pretexts. So all of a sudden... All the plans of the yeshivas and the others were shown to be uh, based on, a, on a, a faulty mirage. Because you thought that you'd be able to hold out over the war in neutral Lithuania, where conditions were pretty good, the government was relatively liberal towards the from Jews, and all of a sudden you now you find yourself under Stalin. Uh, which to them was a super nightmare, because they knew that communist Russia is against religion, and it's going to be a lethal for the yeshivas. Okay? Um, yeah, I just read a... Well, let me... let me, uh, I have to go off to an appointment now. Let me, let me finish this up. <coughs> okay, I had to go for my cardiac rehab stuff. Um, where was I holding? I think with uh, the Soviet in occupation of Lithuania <coughs> and Latvia and Estonia. But again, the Soviets did this because Hitler upset the apple cart by overrunning France, and all of a sudden he's too powerful. And so Stalin like, freaked out, we better grab whatever territory we can to keep it away from Hitler. Not that Stalin was a nice guy, but I'm just saying this was a natural Soviet reaction to Germany's triumph in, in, in France and, and in Western Europe.
So I hope you follow what I just said. <coughs> but that means that Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia were the carbonus of uh, high politics. And let me put it this way, the Rabbanim, the Russian Shiva, they didn't follow all this. You get it? Most, I mean, I'm speaking now as a historian from hindsight, and, you know, it's public knowledge and so forth and so on. Now we know all about it. At that time, you, you had to follow the papers every day, and you had to, you know, watch what's going on. Even then, the, the, the situation full of surprises. And you had to really think long and hard, like, what's coming down the road? Is situation going to be like this in a month? Is situation going to be like this? How is Germany to, together with, with, with uh, how's Russia together with Germany? How does it affect Lithuania? Um, and by and large, as far as I can tell, the world in general, and the Rabbanim also, and the Rosh Hashivas, they weren't doing this. They weren't following every little detail uh, of, of events. Uh, some people were. Um, our hero was simply because, you know, he was highly educated and, and uh, he had thrown himself into what we call Hatzala work. Remember, he could have gotten out and gone to Palestine himself. He had those certificates. Anytime, he, he didn't do that. He, he, put, he sent others. Uh, and he, I guess he was idealistic, but uh, it's hard to be idealistic in the situation where, where, where the international reality is changing so bitterly. And he was fully aware that, uh, you know, Lithuania is living on borrowed time in a way that the, that the other Rabbanim Rashibas were not. Uh, they thought perhaps in the long run things might go bad, but you have time. And he realized there was less and less time than people thought. Now, to be exact, uh, when Hitler took over France, which is in May and June of 1940, that's when Stalin moved to take over Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia. But if you saw the news that was going at that time, you could already tell what's going to happen. Because I don't want to get too detailed, but the Soviets already engineered incidents earlier than this where Soviet soldiers... Well, let, let me put it this way. When... Russia, when Soviet Union took over half of Poland, I told you before, they gave the Vilna part, that district, to Lithuania, which had a lot of Jews. But in return for that, uh, Stalin demanded, and he got, that you can station Soviet troops inside Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia. So there were already Russian troops there. Now, they're not supposed to interfere, they're just supposed to stay on their own bases, but you know how that goes. And uh, incidents started happening where Lithuanians insulted Soviet soldiers, they said, or vice versa. Who knows? All this kind of stuff. And it wasn't a healthy outlook. So maybe I'm cheating because I'm looking with hindsight. But it's, and, and I'll say it again. <clears throat> my own parents, my own father was there, and you know, he didn't see it either. Uh, it's funny how these things go, or tragic, I should say. Um, and not many people, you know, realized how time is running out. But our hero did. And so he ran around from place to place, especially to foreign uh, embassies and consulates and that sort of thing, which were located in Kovna, because uh, in, in the Lithuanian Republic of 1920s and 30s, they couldn't have Vilna as the capital, which they wanted, so they had Kovna, Kaunas. All right, I was there. And, uh, you know, let's put it this way. He got a lot of doors uh, slammed in his face, but... If you're into Hatsala, just like a Kira person, you got to try again and again and again and again and again, and you never stop until um, maybe one day you get lucky. And uh, it was a hard time. And in my opinion, this was his finest hour because 
it's not easy to be a spoiler and a Cassandra and say, I see doom coming, I see bad stuff coming. Uh, we should get on this. The yeshivas should get out of here. And, uh, and the Rosh Hashivas, around Kala, you know, they say, this is a Mizrahi guy. You know, we're not, we're not interested in any of, of, of the way you're seeing things. And uh, it was frustrating to him. Now, by the way, he wanted to get the non-from out also. It's not just the from thing. So um, then comes May of 40. And all of a sudden, the Soviets in, in June, late May and June, they take over. It didn't happen overnight, but it happened pretty quickly. And all of a sudden, there's a new Metsias. You're under the Soviet Union. Then, all of a sudden, the yeshiva started to say, you know, we should think of ways to get out of here. Um, but, you know, yes and no. I'm not 100% sure why this was once the Soviet Union took over. Now, it's not true that Stalin, on day one, said, let's go after the yeshivas in the from. That's not how the Russians worked. Uh, they, they, they took down a lot of information. Who's who? A year later, they made one big swoop. And they sent everybody off Siberia on their list. And those guys were the lucky ones because they, they were taken off just before Hitler invaded. So, you know, the yeshivas lived a precarious existence. It was at this time, though, that you could see more and more that you got to get out of here somewhere, some way. And even the yeshivas now wrote abroad, you know, I remember they wrote to the Vada, uh, Hatsala in New York and uh, and they worked for it, you know what I mean? This is, you read the Mike Tress books and all that, you can see the inside story, very interesting to me of the uh, lobbying that the Agud and the other types did in, with the State Department uh, look, at the end, they did get a few visas for big shots like Reverend Cutler and the Telzer Rashibas and people like that, you know, a few uh, based on the argument, interestingly, to the State Department that these people are anti-communists and if they come to America, they will support the cause of anti-communism, which was true. I mean, th that is not a lie. A Russia Shiva is not um, interested in communism. And so many Jews were into communism, especially in the eyes of the State Department, that they didn't want to let a lot of people in because they felt that, you know, that's one of the reasons, that's one of the reasons, not the only reason, that they, that they didn't want to let in Eastern European Jews into this country. So, you know, that's the result of that lobbying. But uh, overall, you couldn't get a lot of people out. And that even happened only later in 41. Um, and here we are in the second half of 1940. And the situation is really bad. And then comes the famous uh, window of opportunity, at least for some. And that's associated, of course, with Sugihara, with the Dutch consul. Basically... A, a, a guy from, I think, Tells, who was Dutch, went to the Dutch consul, who he knew in, in Kovno, and he said like this, listen, my family lives in Holland, uh, and I'm Jewish, uh, but I'm a Dutch citizen. I can't go back home to Holland. The Germans are there. So how do I get out of here? I don't want to be under Russia. You don't either. How do I get out of here? And where can I go? I mean, I can't go to America, you know. On the other hand, and listen closely, at that time, this is before World War II, the little Holland, which is actually called the Kingdom of the Netherlands, had a large empire around the world. Uh, not everybody knows that. Most people probably don't. This is not true today. I'm talking about then. For one thing, for example, they owned the Dutch East Indies, which is all the islands that compose Indonesia, which is huge. But the Dutch also had colonies in uh, Africa and in South America. 
and in the Caribbean, and all kind of places like that. This goes back to Dutch history. So, that's just interesting, okay? That's interesting. Now, if you're a Dutch citizen, so you have the right to live in, <clears throat> in, in normal times. You have the right to live in the Kingdom of the Netherlands, in Holland, as we call it. You know, Amsterdam and those places. But, you also have the right, if you feel like it, to go live in one of those Dutch colonies. So, let's say I was a Dutch guy in 1920. And... I felt like moving to, you know, Sumatra, what you call today Indonesia. It's a Dutch colony. I can do it. You know, no problem. Right? As a matter of fact, the Dutch government was interested that Dutch, Dutchmen should, should move to the colonies, strengthen the Dutch presence, because otherwise you have a lot of natives. Or I could move to Suriname or, one, you know, someplace in South America or this place and the other. So this Jewish fellow, a Shiva guy, who I think was engaged or something. So he went to the Dutch. It's very famous. So he went to the Dutch uh, consul. His name was Zwartendijk. Zwartendijk, actually. Which means Schwarzenberg, you know. And it's in Dutch. It was not Jewish. And basically he said like this. You know, I got to get out of here. And where can we go? And one of the things he said was that we have a place in the Caribbean, in Curaçao. It's a Dutch island. It still belongs to the Dutch today, I think. And, uh, I think. And uh, you can go there. Uh, maybe from there you get to America. Who knows? You know, whatever. Now, think about what I'm saying. Geographically, how the heck did somebody get from Soviet-occupied Lithuania in May and June of 1940? Or July of 40? When... You know, this is controlled by Germany. This is controlled by Stalin. I mean, how did somebody actually do that? You understand? Uh, theoretically, you could take a ship from Lithuania or someplace like that and go to Sweden and then go across the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, that's possible. Chances are you'd be torpedoed by the uh, German U-boats. But, you know, it's that's one possibility. And they were thinking about that. But meanwhile, you know, get me a, uh, a visa for, or, or I don't even need a visa, I'm Dutch, to go to uh, to uh, Curacao. And when you have a visa, that's a legal document from a government, other governments will recognize and let you pass through their country. Okay? What are you doing over here? You're not from America? Well, I'm on my way, you know, from France to Japan. So I'm just passing through. Well, you have a visa? Okay. If you don't have a visa, usually forget about it. Okay, and this guy did not need a visa, but on the other hand, it was just interesting that the Dutch consul told him that you know in Curacao you don't actually need a visa to go there, but when you get there they don't have to admit you. There is a Dutch governor in uh, in Curacao, and uh, it's up to him. He can let you in or let you out or, or keep you out. And the Dutch colonial officials usually actually were kind of anti-Semitic. But, you know, maybe, you know, maybe let you in. I mean, you're a citizen, probably. Now, what you have to understand over here, and this is just very interesting, that in World War II, Hitler occupied physically Western Europe. Uh, Holland, Belgium, France, uh, Norway, places like that, Denmark. But those countries I just mentioned, many of them had empires overseas. And... When the 
mother country fell to the Germans, the colonies did not recognize that. They said, we're still the Dutch Empire and we're loyal to the true Holland, not to the German occupiers. You see, when they took over Holland, I'm just using that for one example, when they took over Holland, so the Queen of Holland ran away to England. And she said like this, as far as I'm concerned, we're a government in exile, but we are the legitimate government of the Netherlands. The Germans came in and raped us. You understand? But they have no right to do so. So therefore, all my empire, all my colonies should listen to me and my free government here in London. And they did. Uh, same thing happened in Belgium with the Belgian Congo, uh, which did not listen to the Belgium. Uh, France was extremely complicated. I don't want to go into that now with Vichy France and De Gaulle and all that, but similar things happened. <laughs> so for our purposes, the Dutch colonies were what we call not under Germany. They didn't listen to Germany. They listened to the to the free government in, in London, you know, which was an exile. So the bottom line is if you're Jewish and, and you're Dutch, you can go to, to that island and you go to, listen, better, better be there dead in Europe and get killed. And anyway, it's not far from America. It's in the Caribbean, right? You get what I'm saying? From the Caribbean. Maybe you get lucky and you'll be able to get into America. Okay. He told um, Zarkvar Haftig, he told this guy, because he knew that he's an activist, always trying to look for for uh, places to get out. Uh, now, I don't want to get in the nitty-gritty because some say a lady did it before him, but it's good enough for us. And here's what uh, our hero did. He said, wait a minute. If that works for you, ask him if he'll sign, you know, certificates that look like visas that say that, uh, you know, this um, certificate is an official one from the Dutch government, which allows you to go to Curacao because you don't need a visa to get into Curacao. And so the bottom line is, this is a legal person going legally through the to the Dutch colony of Curacao. Uh, that's amazing because listen to what I'm saying. You couldn't get it. You couldn't get a document that says this is allowing somebody to get into the United States of America. Everybody knew America had a quota. They won't let you in. And that's true of all the other countries also. They wouldn't let you in. The only place you can go in is this uh, uh, stupid Dutch island in the middle of the Caribbean. Well, wait a minute. The first guy was actually Dutch. How do you know it works for somebody who's not Dutch? <laughs> you understand? Now, the truth of the matter is, it did not work for them. But what Farhaftig said, he said, talk to the Dutch guy and say this, look, we, we got to get out of here. Once we're out of here, out of Europe, we'll figure something out, get some answer. But right now, this is the hot spot. Uh, something bad is going to happen to the Jews here. So whatever it is, you want to get your body out of here and over there somewhere else. You understand? Just just get out of Europe. Go to Asia. Go to Africa. You ask me a question, what will you do over there? Get some we'll, we'll, we'll see. But all I know is to be in Lithuania now is a bad idea. Okay? And so, um, famously, the Dutch guy surprised everybody and said, I'll do it. And so he filled out all these famous Curacao things. You know, the word spread quickly among the yeshivas. Some Rosh yeshivas said it's baloney. You know, it's it, it's not going to work. I think Ryan Cutler is famous as saying it's Asha Yatsa paper, something like that, for which our hero never forgave my men. I remember reading a, an article many years ago that, 
This guy, Zark Bahavdik, died, I think, in 2000 or 2002 or something like that. He was an old man. And I'm going by memory. I remember seeing in an old Jerusalem post something. But he interviewed him before he died, whatever. And he says, I do not forget Rabbi Cutler and all that. That time, I didn't know what he was talking about. Uh, and I don't know if it's exactly true. You know, people are very partisan in these things, but it could be. Uh, but plenty of people, like in the Mir Yeshiva and you know, others, saw this as, as as a straw, you know, possible way of getting out of here. And so uh, uh, they went to the guy. In fact, next thing you know, the Dutch consulate, or whatever it was, his apartment was full of Jews saying, please, please, please give us one of those uh, certificates just to get out of here. Now, the second question goes like this. Once you get the certificate, you're in the Soviet Union. How, how, do, you, how do you leave? You know, Russia's a one-way ticket. You're here, you ain't leaving. Uh, and he appealed, so for Hoftig, appealed to the Soviet government. Can't remember exactly how it went, but this, th- th- let me put it this way. Russia's a, a, a dictatorship. I mean, really under Stalin was a dictatorship. So he gave the final okay and everything. And for whatever reason, uh, he, he's, oh no, first they went to, I thought, now I remember. Once he got the Dutch thing, so you're going to have to go through Russia to Japan. So they went to the Japanese consul there, who was a new guy, that's the famous Sugihara. And by the time it's over, they got him also to sign on that, you know, this gives you the right to travel through Japan to some other place, Right even though it wasn't 100% according to the rules. But that means that you have a lifeline out of there. Now, I repeat, you couldn't save 100,000 people with this. You could save a small number of people. And that's what they did. The only tragedy is they could have saved more. But don't think that you could have saved 6 million or anything like that. Uh, but it's very famous, this Japanese consul, who was a regular Japanese diplomat, you know. Uh, for some reason, he felt bad for the Jews. And... Um, he signed all these uh, necessary papers, gave them all visas. So if you can get to Japan, you know, you, you, you can go through them. And then he went, then they appealed to Stalin, basically, to the Soviet government, to the NKVD, which was the secret police. They're the ones who had the final say and everything. And they actually got permission from them to uh, travel through, this is amazing, to travel through Russia from the Atlantic to the Pacific, um, paying, you know, full full ticket. And they got the money from America. And, uh, you know, it's it's good business for the Soviet Union. And they're actually going to let you out. This has to do with the fact that the Soviet Union at that time was very un- uh, unclear about what its policy should be. And they didn't want to tick off the Americans too much either. They wanted to look good. And That's my opinion, anyway. And, uh, like I say, they weren't going after the rabbis as such. Actually, if you get them the heck out of there, it's even better. You know, that was Stalin's attitude. That's why he let the Lubavitch Rebbe out in 1929. That's why he let Abramsky out in 32. You know, just get him out of here. You know, it's more trouble than they're worth. I mean, he killed plenty of them also, but I'm just saying that's how it went. And so here you had the famous story that um, they got on a train in, in, in Lithuania and they traveled all across Russia, all across the Soviet Union, uh, to the Pacific Ocean. And once they got to the Pacific Ocean... They could take a ship from Vladivostok, which is the Russian port over there, to Japan, which is not far away at all. Look on the map, and you'll see Vladivostok is not far from Japan. Um, and, of course, they landed in Japan, and then the trick was, where are you going from there? Where are you going from there? 
Um, so he was the um, the pusher of this, the organizer, many was the negotiator uh, for Haftig, and therefore he he really was played a major role in this whole um, story. Uh, and he got out he got out a lot. Well, he got about twenty four hundred something like that. He got a lot, a lot of people, um, but. It's because he was moving real fast. The Zerizis was the, the main factor over here. Um, because once the Russians consolidated their hold on Lithuania, they don't want to do it anymore. You, you see, you know, it's, it's, you know, that's how it goes. He saw a window of opportunity and they, and they moved it. They had a, they had foreign documents and the Russians didn't have to honor those foreign documents, but they chose to. And that's how those who got out, including the Mir Yeshiva, but not only them, uh, got out. And uh, he himself didn't leave like to the end, like till till much later. Um, our hero, him and his wife, uh, the 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 original guy from Tells never made it to Curacao. I think he went to ended up in the Dutch East Indies, and then was in a Japanese prison camp. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So in other words, he had bad mazel. Uh, now it's better than being in the German camp, but uh, Japanese were pretty brutal in their prison camps also. But here we come to famous paradox. Because, um, as I think everybody's aware, the Japanese did not go bad on these Jewish refugees. F- the from ones, the Mir Yeshiva, the Hasidic rabbis like Damshen Rebbe and the others, we, we, I think we've all heard the stories. And say what you want, you know, they were in Kobe, and they went and talked to the government of Yokohama, and many of them ended up in Shanghai, as, as we all know, and they survived the war and were not killed by the Japanese. So... Uh, uh, this is why this is the the podcast I did long ago, last year about Professor Kotsuji Kotsuji, who eventually became a Gerritzetic, and he was this Japanese guy. I'm not going to go through the whole story again. You listen to that to that one, and he was in the right place at the right time, uh, in a position to uh, be like an intermediary, shall we say, between the refugees on the one hand and the Japanese authorities on the other. And, uh, you know, he knew how to handle with the Japanese because he was Japanese. And it's all Minashamayim, you know, because a crazy story. Even though Japan was allied to Hitler, but they never bought into the anti-Semitism part per se. There was a certain amount of anti-Semitism in, 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 in Japan, and there's no question about that. But there was also um, a whole bunch of reasons why the Japanese were wary of anti-Semitism also. They um, precisely because they saw Jews as so powerful. That that's a part that they never, you know, joined Hitler on. It's just interesting. And there is, like I say, I'm not going to repeat myself now. If you go listen to that, Avram uh, um, Ben Professor Katsuji, you'll see. You know, there I tried to be Masbred as best I could uh, long ago. Uh, but this was started by our hero, and he eventually listen. Whoever got out got out. Whoever didn't get out was in Lithuania. Got killed usually. Right, because what happened was that this went on into forty one. Um, so the Russian occupation of Lithuania was from mid forty to mid forty one. Then Hitler came in in uh, June, late June, and July forty one. The invasion of Soviet Union, including Lithuania and all the other areas, uh, started in the summer of forty one, and then it was over because they shot everybody. Uh, this is what they call the Holocaust by bullets. In six months of 41, from June till December, 
the Germans and their henchmen shot one and a half million Jews, plus the Pushers. Uh, so those yeshivas that didn't leave at that time, like Tells, for example, or the Slobod, I mean, they just shot them. Uh, nothing to talk about. Town after town throughout Lithuania and Belarus and, uh, you know, Ukraine, and just shot them. Uh, there were other places where they put them in ghettos and then later shot them, whatever. But the point of the matter is they, they killed everybody. This is the great tragedy of that time. And uh, so those who got out was Mamasha Yechidim. And uh, uh, so our hero got out also. He made it to Japan. He met Katsuchi and all that. He was in Kobe for a while. Some people were lucky that when they got to Japan, they were able to get entry into America. I imagine he got in because he was an important Zionist. It's probably the Zionist, I, I imagine, you know, pulled strings. You could always get in one or two, get it? You could always get in a few. You just can't get in a bunch. And the Aguda pulled strings. You get in a few people like Robert Cutler, like I say, and some others, tells them here and there. You know, a few you could get in. Um, there was even one or two or three that got into Canada. That's how Ray Erspring uh, got out. But rove of the people who made it to Japan, who officially are supposed to be going to Curacao. And, you know, theoretically, you can take a ship from Japan to the Panama Canal, which is not that far away, and you go through the Panama Canal, and then you're in the Caribbean. And then it's close to Curacao. Yeah, but they, they didn't really have the right to go to Curacao, you see. So it was just all a shtick to get out of Europe. Well, that was the right move. Because if you would stay behind in Europe, you'd be there in July of 41, and then you get shot. Plain and simple. So these are the people who somehow or other survived. Many ended up in, in, in Shanghai, which already had a Jewish community of other refugees. Some even survived in um, other Japanese-occupied areas in China. Because all during World War II, uh, the Japanese were in occupation of, of a lot of China. And again, it's really funny that they did not treat the Jews badly. Um, and there were a whole bunch of Jewish communities that were in, in, in uh, communication with the Japanese authorities. Uh, I, as I mentioned before, I used to have a guy in my show, Mr. Rotenberg, Wolf Rotenberg, who had his bar mitzvah in Tianjin under the Japanese occupation, I don't know, around 1940, whatever, or something like that. Uh, you could have a, a Jewish life. And this is weird. It's like Minishamayim because... The Japanese are not exactly kind people. Uh, they're unbelievably brutal to the Chinese. The Chinese have a Yad Vashem of their own. Um, they're unbelievably brutal to the American and British and Australian prisoners of war <coughs> in World War II. I think, you know, like the bridge over the River Kwai, you know, that kind of thing. The Bataan Death March and many other things. They burned people with gasoline. They did horrible things. So it's funny, the Japanese had two sides to them. I'm serious about this. And one side was a courteous side, and the other one wasn't. And in certain wars, they were courteous to their prisoners, like in the Russian-Japanese War. And for some reason, I don't know exactly why, they were the opposite of that in World War II. But on the other hand, to the, uh, to the Jewish refugees, they were pretty courteous. Um, you know, you had a couple bad officials here and there, but overall, if the Japanese government would, would have wanted to kill the Jews in their Rishos in World War II, it would have been the easiest thing in the world. 
I mean, uh, I don't know if you know this, when uh, Doolittle bombed Tokyo in um, April, I guess, of 42, some of you will be familiar with what I'm talking about, the American surprise air raid in Tokyo, and then the American planes, which had taken off from a carrier, landed in China and ran away. The Japanese were so angry at the Chinese, they killed a quarter of a million men, women, and children over that. You see, 250,000. So, um, you know, they, they, they weren't nice people, except when they were. So I'm not going to go into all that. I'm simply going to point out that our hero was therefore able to get the whole route, go from uh, Kovna, get on a train, go all the way across the Soviet Union. Uh, this is well before Hitler invaded. Um, though I'm not saying it's easy to cross all Russia. It was like a two, three-week journey on the train and the winter was freezing, but, but, but it, you know, they did it. And then he got to Japan and then eventually from Japan, this all legal, he got a visa into America. So he was a lucky one. And he spent the war in America working on, on Hatsala. But at the end of the day, how much could a guy like this do in Hatsala? He was a refugee himself, was an American citizen, you know, uh, He's active in Zionism. Uh, I mean, I'm sure he was into the hot solo stuff, but, you know, he's not one of the big players. And when the war was over, I'll say this, he immediately went to um, Europe to look at the DPs and to be on, on these missions where they tried to bring back Jewish children who had ended up in, in monasteries and in Geisha homes, all the rest of it. I think you know what I'm talking about. There were a lot of Jewish kids that were kept by non-Jewish families which is a good thing, and then they didn't want to get him back, and they had all kind of activities to try to get him back, and he was very much involved in all this sort of thing, uh, which is good. And uh, then eventually in '47 he moved to Palestine, so uh, and right away became a big mocker in the Hapoel Mizrahi movement. Uh, I think because first of all he was an intelligent person, but he had a high education. It's like Begin and some others. He had a a law degree from the Harvard Law School of Poland. I know in America it sounds funny to say that, but I don't mean it in a funny way. Uh, and so that gave you a cloud. Plus, he knew how to learn. And his father was a renowned Talmud Chacham. So uh, he became a big mocker in the, in the Mizrahi movement just before Israel became a state. Moved there in forty-seven. Within a year, he was already uh, in the cabinet. Uh, he was elected, uh, you know, to the Knesset. And uh, I told you again, he signed the Declaration of Independence as representative of the Hapola Mizrahi Party. He was not there in the room when Ben-Gurion proclaimed the state on Friday afternoon of May 14th of 48. He was in Yerushalayim, which was under siege by the Arabs, perhaps. I don't know if you know that or whatever. Um, but eventually, when he showed up later, Ben-Gurion said, you sign now, as if you'd been there. And he became one of the big machers in the, in the religious Zionist uh, you know, uh, arena. And I remember he was a minister in the government. He was a minister of religion for a long time. Sarah de Toad, I think in the 50s or 60s. And all that. And he had his career. But that uh, that career, by the, by the way, it's really funny. Once he became in the government, his father started winning all these uh, literary prizes for his farm. <laughs> you know, it's, the whole world is the same. If you know the right people, you don't need, you don't need protexia. But, um, he, you know, he became an important person. I remember he was in the government in the Six-Day War, for example, but but that's not the 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 interesting part. That's what I'm talking about today. The interesting part was 
the and the reason I agreed to do this was to evoke and to make you try to understand that um, uh, it's hard for us to grasp the fact that uh, you have to properly evaluate current events, and especially in dramatic times, uh, you have to be able to to uh, properly evaluate them and then base your own decisions of what you do, where you live, where you go, and all the rest of it on that. And uh, that's not what Jews did, surprisingly, in the 1930s, even though Hitler was in power in Germany and he was already persecuting the Jews terribly in Germany. They didn't see it as, you know, that one day is going to be a war and we should get out of here and all the. If somebody got out of Poland, let's say, or Lithuania in the 1930s, I mean, that was the smartest move in the world. I don't care where you move to, right? Even if you move to, uh, you know, Cucamonga or something like that, at least you got out of Eastern Europe. That's the wrong place to be. That's where the six million, whatever, however many got killed. I mean, that was where all the terrible massacres and the tortures and those who weren't massacred right then and there were, were killed over the next several years. Um, you know, and, and people just don't have any idea of how thorough a job the Nazis did, and their helpers, by the way, and the Lithuanian Goyim and the Latvians and the Estonians and the Belarusians and the Ukrainians, not the Poles, but the others. Uh, so, like I say, if you got a, if you got a, a, a ticket to Bolivia, you know, to a Tasmania, whatever, you know, you, you, you went there. You couldn't persuade that to people as late as 1938-39. And when the war broke out, as I just indicated to you, even though you see all hell is broken out in Poland, in next door little Lithuania, which was a weak little nothing country, they persuaded themselves that here everything will be great. Um, so to, it's including the Bene Toro. Um, so you know it's it's uh, we say Eze Chachamarosa Nolad. I mean that's a true statement. You have to be Roa Es Hanola, but in order to do that, you have to follow current events very carefully. And uh, you know who has the time to do all that? And uh, now today it's a different story. You have these, uh, you know, let's put it this way. You can, you know, turn on the uh, computer and in one second, even if you're from, you look at the, you know, this news or that news and you, you, you know the basic idea of what's happening. But uh, at that time it wasn't like that. So it's really, really tragic that so many people died um, from and not from. You know, uh, this audience is usually more worry, more interested in the uh, the fate of the yeshiva guys, the Bnei Torah, in 39, 40, 41. And I understand, I, I mean, I get that. But, you know, they're not the only Jews out there. And uh, even the Gedolim who made it to America, like Rabbi Cutler, in the beginning, I told you this once, when he first came here, and the other Rabbonim, like Relatives of Silver and the others in, in the Vada Tzola, they were concentrating on, on the yeshiva guys. Uh because that's what everybody else was doing. The socialist Jews were concentrating on saving the socialist Jews, and the Bundists were t concentrating on saving the Bundists, and the Zionists were concentrating on saving the Zionists. So the Aguda types, as I'll call them, were interested in saving the, the Yeshiva light. But as World War I progressed, World War II, I mean, progressed, and little by little, the full picture came out of what's going on in Eastern Europe. Everybody, including the Aguda, including Brian Cutler, everybody, they said, this is not just for a couple of yeshiva guys. The whole Kali is in danger of getting killed. And, you know, they eventually started lobbying to save whoever you can. 
The trouble is, by then it was really too late, as I explained in the past, because by 42, early 43, you know, most of the 6 million, as we call them, were already gone. You see, not, not all, you know, not all, but, you know, the, the huge numbers were gone. All of Lithuania was already destroyed by then. All of that area, Lita, Raisin, Zamut, you know, Ukraine, you know, it, was, it, it was all gone. So this is part of the tragedy of the Holocaust. And uh, this is the role that uh, Zark Bahaptig uh, played in it, as I understand it. And once again, uh, if for further information, get in touch with Sam. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.